Section number 34 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emanuela. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1 section thirty four chapter nine the teutonic migrations three hundred and seventy eight four hundred and twelve by m manitius in the following year four hundred and five the ostrogoths and vandals the alani and the quadi under the leadership of radagaisus left their homes crossed the alps and descended into italy their number though much exaggerated by contemporary historians must have been considerable for the hostile army marched through the north of the peninsula in several divisions stilico seems to have collected his troops at pavia the invasion happened at a very inopportune moment as he was about to carry out his designs on eastern illyria this time, however, he quickly succeeded in ridding himself of the enemy. He surrounded the Radagaisus, who had attacked Florence, in the narrow valleys of the Apennines near Fesule, and destroyed a large part of his army. Radagaisus himself was captured with his sons whilst trying to escape, and was shortly afterwards executed. For this victory, Stilicho's thanks were chiefly due to two foreign generals, Sarus the Goth and Uldin the Hun. In this manner, Italy had indeed been speedily saved from great danger, but at the end of the next year, 406, hostile hordes broke into Gaul with so much the greater violence. It is very probable that this invasion, which was undertaken by the Vandals, had some connection with that of Radagaisus. In conjunction with the Vandals were the Alani, who had recently formed an alliance with them, and the Suevi, by whom we must understand the Quadi, who had formerly dwelt north of the Vandals. This great tribal migration, following the road along the Roman frontier, Limes, reached the river main where they met the selingi a vandal tribe which had gone westward with the burgundians in the third century this now helped to swell the vandal hordes whilst a part of the alani under the leadership of gore enlisted in the roman army on the rhine near this river the vandals were attacked by some frankish tribes who were keeping guard on the frontier, in accordance with their treaty with Stilico. In the ensuing fight, the Vandals suffered severe losses, their king Godigisel being amongst the slain. On receiving this news, the Alani immediately turned about and, led by their king Respendial, they completely routed the Franks. On the last day of 406, this mass of people crossed the Rhine at Mainz, which they invested and destroyed. 
The march was continued by Treves to Reims, where the bishop Nicasius was slain in his own church. Thence the Tournai, Turin, Arras, and Amiens. From this point, the journey proceeded through Gallia Lugnunensis to Paris, Orleans, and Tours, and passing through Aquitania into Novem Populana by Bordeaux to Toulouse which the bishop Exuperius saved from falling into the enemy's hands. But the fortified passes of the Pyrenees put a step to their farther advance. Thus, Spain remained unconquered for the present, and the Vandals now made their way into the rich province of Narbonensis. The devastation of the extensive provinces and the conquered city of Gaul was terrible, Contemporary writers of prose and verse alike complain bitterly of the atrocities committed by the barbarians in this unhappy country. The oldest people could not remember so disastrous an invasion. The weakness of the empire is revealed by the absence of a Roman army to oppose the Germans. Stilicho's policy was at that time directed towards Illyria, and for this reason he probably found it impossible to come to the assistance of Gaul. This first great danger was soon followed by a second. The migration of the Vandals had very likely caused the Burgundians along the middle course of the main to become restless. They now began to bear down upon the Alemanni on the lower main. A part of the Burgundians had perhaps intended to join the great migration of 406, for shortly after we meet with them on the west side of the Rhine. The most important result, however, was that the Alemanni now entered on a campaign against Roman Upper Germany and conquered Worms, Speyer and Strasbourg. Here again the Empire failed to send help and the Allied Franks remained quiet. Stilicho, meanwhile, collected an army in 406 and arranged a plan with Alaric, by which he could carry out his Illyrian projects from Epirus. Already a prefectus pretorio for Illyria had been nominated in the person of Jovius, when in the year 407 an event occurred which threw everything else into the background. A new emperor appeared on the scene. When a rumor had spread, that Alaric was dead, the legions in Britain, after two unsuccessful attempts, proclaimed Constantine emperor. Note 1. First, a man named Marcus and after him Gratian, a British official, had been declared emperors. Both, however, were after a short time put to death by the soldiers. End of note 1. According to Orosius, he was a common soldier, but his name excited hopes for better times. The new emperor crossed over to Gaul without delay, where he was recognized by the Roman troops throughout the country. He immediately pushed forward into the districts along the Rhone, where, though he probably concluded treaties with the Alemanni, Burgundians and Franks, he made but little impression on the Teutons who had invaded the land, but Stilicho had already sent 
the experienced General Sarus with an army against him. In the neighborhood of Valens, which Constantine had made his temporary abode, his General Justinian was defeated and killed in battle by Sarus. Another of the usurper's generals met his death soon afterwards during an interview with the crafty Goth. When, however, Constantine sent against him his newly appointed generals, the Frank Edobic and the Brighton Gerontius, Sarus abandoned the siege of Valence and effected the passage into Italy by paying a sum of money to the fugitive peasants called Bagaude, who at that time held the passes of the western Alps. Stilico joined Honorius at Rome to discuss the serious situation. Constantine, however, directed his attention toward Spain, evidently with a view to protect his rear before attacking Italy. At the passes across the Pyrenees, he met with energetic resistance from Didymus, Verenianus, Theodosius, and Logadius, all relatives of the emperor. But Constantine's son, Constance, soon overcame the enemy. He captured Verenianus and Didymus, whilst Theodosius and Logadius fled, the former to Italy, the latter to the east. After this, when Constance had returned to Gaul in triumph, he entrusted the passes to Gerontius, who was in command of the Honorians, a troop of barbarian federati. These, it appears, fulfilled their duty, but indifferently, for during the quarrels which ensued in the borderlands the Vandas, Alani and Suevi, who had pushed on as far as southern Gaul, saw an opportunity of executing their design on Spain. With these disturbances in Spain is generally connected a great rising of the Celts in Britain and Gaul, which was directed against the advancing Teutonic tribes as well as against the Roman rule, and in which the Gaulish district of Armonica was specially concerned. Thus was prepared in these provinces the separation from the Roman government, which had lasted for centuries, and at the same time Teutonic rule superseded that of the Romans in Spain. Meanwhile Alaric had not failed to profit by the violent disturbances within the Western Empire. As Stilico had neither undertaken the campaign against Illyria nor met the demands of the Gothic soldiers for their pay, Alaric believed himself entitled to deal a powerful blow at the Western Empire. Stilico had recently strengthened his relations with the imperial house by a new link. The Empress Maria had died early, still a virgin as rumor went, and Stilico succeeded in persuading the emperor to marry his second daughter, Thermantia. Now Alaric tried to force his way into Italy. He had left Epirus and reached Emona. There he probably found the roads to the south buried. He therefore crossed the river Aquilis and made his way to Virunum in Noricum, whence he sent an embassy to Stilico at Ravenna. 
the ambassadors demanded the enormous sum of four thousand pounds of gold as compensation for the long delay in epirus and the present campaign of the goths stilico went to rome to discuss the matter with the emperor and the senate the majority of the senate was opposed to the concession of this demand and would have preferred war with the goths but stilico's power in the assembly was still so great that his opinion prevailed and the huge sum was paid at this juncture the rumour spread that the emperor of the east was dead arcadius had indeed died first may four hundred and eight this greatly altered the situation for theodosius the second the heir of the eastern throne was but a child of seven honorius now decided to go to ravenna but was opposed by stilico who wanted himself to inspect the troops there but neither did stilico succeed in dissuading honorius nor could a mutiny among the soldiers at ravenna which sarus had promoted induce the emperor to desist from his plan nevertheless he eventually diverged from the route to ravenna and went to bologna where he ordered stilico to meet him for the purpose of discussing the situation in the east stilico's first concern at bologna was to calm the agitation amongst the soldiers and recommend the ringleaders to the emperor's mercy then he took counsel with honorius it was the emperor's wish to go in person to constantinople and settle the affairs of the eastern empire but stilico tried to turn him from this purpose pointing out that the journey would cause too much expense and that the emperor could not well leave italy whilst constantine was as yet powerful and residing at ours honorius bent his will to the prudent counsel of his great statesman and it was resolved that stilico should go to the east whilst alaric was sent with an army to gaul against constantine stilico however neither departed from the east nor did he gather together the troops which remained assembled at pavia and were ill-disposed towards him meanwhile a cunning greek the chancellor olympius profited by the change in the emperor's feelings towards his great minister under the mask of a christian piety he secretly intrigued against stilico in order to undermine his position thus olympius accompanied the emperor to pavia and on this occasion spread the calumnious report that stilico intended to kill the child theodosius and put his own son eucherius on the throne the storm now gathered over stilico's head the prelude to the catastrophe however took place at pavia when the emperor had arrived with olympius at this town the latter made an exhibition of his philanthropy by visiting the sick soldiers probably his real object was to gather the threads of the conspiracy which he had already spun and to weave them further on the fourth day honorius himself appeared among the troops and tried to inspire them with enthusiasm for the fight against constantine at this moment olympius gave a sign to the soldiers and 
in accordance with a previous arrangement they threw themselves upon all the high military and civil officers present who were supposed to be stilicho's adherents some of them escaped to the town but the soldiers rushed through the streets and killed all the unpopular dignitaries the slaughter continued under the very eyes of the emperor who had withdrawn at first but repaired without his royal robes and tried to check the mad fury of the soldiers when the emperor fearing for his own life had a second time retired longinianus the prefectus pretorio for italy was also slain news of this horrible mutiny reached stilico at bologna he at once summoned all the generals of teutonic race in whose loyalty alone he could still trust it was decided to attack the roman army should the emperor himself have been killed when however stilico learned that the mutiny had not been directed against honorius he resolved to abstain from punishing the culprits for his enemies were numerous and he was no longer sure of the emperor's support but to this the tutor's generals would not agree and sarus even went so far as to have stilico's hunting bodyguard killed during the night stilico now betook himself to ravenna and to this town olympius dispatched a letter from the emperor addressed to the army with the order to arrest stilico and keep him in honorable custody during the night stilico took refuge in a church to secure the right of sanctuary but in the morning the soldiers fetched him away solemnly assuring him that his life was safe then a second letter from the emperor was read which condemned stilico to death for high treason the fallen man might still have saved his life by appealing to the teuton soldiers who were devoted to him and would readily have fought for him but he made no attempt to do so probably to preserve the empire from a civil war which would have been fatal at this time without resistance he offered his neck to the sword in him the roman empire twenty three of august four hundred and eight lost one of its most prominent statesmen and at the same time one of its ablest generals one who had been in command of the army for twenty-three years without doubt we should consider the fall of stilico as a manifestation of a national roman reaction against the ever-increasing teutonic influence within the empire a reaction proceeding from the political party which saw in the removal of the barbarians the salvation of rome whether this party was right or not they certainly had acted most unwisely for olympius the successor to stilico's position turned his power to very foolish account even the severest tortures could not wring from stilico's friends and followers the confession desired by olympius that the executed minister had aspired to the imperial throne and still more injudicious was the edict by which all those who had attained high office under stilicho's administration forfeited their property to the state but most incomprehensible of all was the fact that the roman soldiers were allowed to wander about murdering and robbing the families of the teuton troops in italy 
the consequence was that thousands of these soldiers deserted and went over to Alaric. Thermancia was sent back to her mother Serena by Honorius, who also sentenced Eucerius to death. But as the latter had escaped to Rome and taken refuge in a church, he was left unmolested for a time. Shortly afterwards, however, he was murdered by two eunuchs who were rewarded by high offices in the state. Alaric's opportunity had arrived. Now that the empire had, of its own free will, lost the services of its great leader. At first, the Gothic chief tried to maintain the peace. He sent ambassadors to the emperor with the message that he would adhere to the treaties made with Stilico, if he received a moderate payment of money, and that, if an exchange of hostages were effected, he would withdraw his troops from Noricum to Pannonia. Although Honorius rejected Alaric's proposals for a peaceful arrangement, he did not take any active steps to ensure success in the campaign which had now become inevitable. Instead of entrusting to Sarus the command of the troops against Alaric, Olympius bestowed it on two men who were faithfully devoted to him, but absolutely devoid of merit. This time Alaric did not tarry long. However, as the campaign promised to assume greater dimensions, he sent for reinforcements from his brother-in-law Ataulf, who was stationed in Upper Pannonia with Hunnic and Gothic troops. Without waiting for Ataulf's arrival, Alaric marched to Aquileia and thence westward to Cremona, where he crossed the Po without meeting with the slightest resistance. Then the Goths proceeded southeast from Placentia to Ariminum, leaving Ravenna unmolested and Tropicenum until they arrived before Rome without opposition. When Alaric surrounded the city, the Senate believed Serena, Stilicos' widow, to be in connivance with him, and as Placidia, the sister of Honorius, was of the same opinion, Serena was put to death. This act of violence had, of course, no influence upon Alaric's policy. On the contrary, the investment of the city was carried on with greater vigor than before. As the Goths also blockaded the Tiber, the city was cut off from all supplies, and soon famine broke out. No help came from Ravenna, and when the distress in the city was at its highest, ambassadors were sent to the hostile camp to ask for moderate terms. At first, Alaric demanded the surrender of all the gold and silver in the city, inclusive of all precious movable goods and the emancipation of all Teuton's slaves, but in the end he lowered his demand to an imposition which, however, was still so heavy that it necessitated the confiscation of the sacred treasures stored in the temples. After this, he withdrew his troops from Rome and went into the neighboring province of Tuscany, where he collected around his standard a great number of slaves who had escaped from Rome. But, even in this situation, Honorius declined the negotiations for peace, which were now urged by Alaric and the Senate alike. 
this temporizing policy could not but bring ruin upon italy the more so as at the beginning of four hundred and nine ambassadors came to treat with honorius about the recognition of constantine the usurper had raised his son constance who had returned from spain to gaul to the dignity of a co-emperor and had had the two cousins of honorius put to death the emperor who entertained hopes that they were still alive and counted upon assistance from constantine against alaric no longer withheld his recognition and even sent him an imperial robe during this time olympius did not shew himself in any way equal to the situation but continued to persecute those whom he believed to be stilicho's adherents honorius now ordered a body of picket troops from dalmatia to come to the protection of rome these six thousand men however under their leader valens were on their way surprised by alaric and all of them but one hundred were cut down a second roman embassy in which the roman bishop innocent took part and which was escorted by troops furnished by alaric was now sent to the emperor in the meantime ataulf had at last made his way from pannonia across the alps and although an army sent by the emperor caused him some loss probably near ravenna his junction with alaric could not be prevented now at last a general outcry against olympius who had shown himself so utterly incompetent arose at the imperial court the emperor was forced to give in and depose his favorite and after this he at length inclined his ear to more peaceful proposals when however the gothic chief in an interview with the prefectus pretorio jovius at ariminum demanded not only an annual subsidy of money and corn but also the cession of venezia noricum and dalmatia and when moreover the same jovius in a letter to the emperor proposed that alaric should be raised to the rank of a magister utrisque milite because it was hoped that this would induce him to lower his terms honorius refused everything and was determined to go to war apparently this bellicose mood continued for shortly afterwards a fresh embassy from constantine appeared at the court promising honorius speedy support from british gaulish and spanish soldiers even jovius had allowed himself to be persuaded by the emperor and together with other high officials had taken an oath of pain of death never to make peace with alaric at first all seemed to go well honorius levied ten thousand huns for his army and to his great satisfaction found that alaric himself was inclined to peace and was sending some italian bishops as ambassadors to him of his former conditions he only maintained the cession of noricum and a subsidy of corn the amount of which was to be left to the emperor's decision he requested honorius not to allow the city of rome which had ruled the world for more than a thousand years to be sacked 
and burned by the Teutons. There can be no doubt that the Goths were forced by the pressure of circumstances to offer these conditions. But Honorius was prevented from complying with them by Jovius, who is said to have pleaded the sanctity of the oath which he and others had taken. Alaric now had recourse to a simple device in order to attain the object of his desires. As he could not out of consideration for the Goths aspire to the imperial crown himself, he caused an emperor to be proclaimed. In order to put this proclamation into effect, he marched to Rome, seized the harbour of Portus, and told the Senate of his intention to divide among his troops all the corn which he found stored there, should the city refuse to obey his orders. The Senate gave in, and in compliance with Alaric's wish was Attalus raised to the throne. He was a Roman of noble descent, who had been given a high government post by Olympius and shortly afterwards made prefect of the city by Honorius. Attalus thereupon raised Alaric to the rank of Magister Militum Presentalis and Attalus to that of Comes Domesticorum, but he gave them each a Roman colleague in their office and Valens was made Magister Militum while Lampadius, an enemy of Alaric, became prefect of the city. On the next day Attalus delivered a high-flown oration in the Senate, boasting that it would be a small matter for him and the Romans to subjugate the whole world. Soon, however, his relations with Alaric became strained. Formerly he had been a heathen, but though he now accepted the Arian faith and was baptized by the Gothic bishop Sigesar. He not only openly slighted the Goths, but also, disregarding Alaric's advice to send a Gothic army under Druma to Africa, dispatched the Roman Constans, with troops ill prepared for war, to that country. Africa was at that time held by Heraclian, one of Honorius' generals, the murderer of Stilico, and the province required the emperor's whole attention, as the entire corn supply of Rome depended upon its possession. Attalus himself now marched against Honorius at Ravenna. The latter, who had already contemplated an escape to the east, sent Attalus a message to the effect that he would consent to acknowledge him as co-emperor. Attalus replied, through Jovius, that he would order Honorius to be mutilated and banish him to some remote island besides depriving him of his imperial dignity. At this critical moment, however, Honorius was saved by 4,000 soldiers of the Eastern Empire, who disembarked at Ravenna and came to his assistance. When the news arrived that the expedition against Heraclian in Africa had proved a complete failure and that Rome was again exposed to a great famine, owing to this victory of Honorius' arms, Attalus and Alaric abandoned the siege of Ravenna. Alaric turned against Emilia, where he took possession of all the cities except Bologna, 
and then advanced in a northwesterly direction toward Liguria. Attalus, on the other hand, hastened to Rome to take counsel with the Senate about the pressing African question. The majority of the assembly decided to send an army of Gothic and Roman troops to Africa under the command of the Goth Druma, but Attalus opposed the plan. This brought about his fall, for when Alaric heard of it, he returned, stripped Attalus of the diadem and purple at Ariminum, and sent both to Honorius. He did not, however, leave the deposed emperor to his fate, but kept him and his son Ampelius under his protection till peace had been concluded with Honorius. Placidia, Honorius' sister, was also in Alaric's keeping. If we may believe Zosimus, she was brought from Rome as a kind of hostage by Alaric, who, however, granted her imperial honours. The deposition of Attalus in May or June 410 was the starting point for renewed negotiations for peace between Alaric and the Emperor, in the course of which the former perhaps claimed a part of Italy for himself. But the peaceful propositions were nipped in the bud by the god Sarus. He was hostile to Alaric and Autaulf. At that time he lay encamped in Picenum, under pretense of being menaced by Ataulf's strong body of troops, he went over to the emperor and violated the truce by an attack on the Gothic camp. Alaric now marched for the third time against Rome, doubtless firmly resolved to punish the emperor for his duplicity by throughoutly chastising the city and to establish at last a kingdom of his own. The investment by the Goths caused another terrible famine in the city, and at last, during the night preceding 24 August 410, the Salarian gate was treacherously opened. Then followed a complete sack of the city, which did not, however, degenerate into mere wanton destruction, especially as it only lasted three days. The deeds of violence and cruelty which are mentioned more particularly in the writings of contemporary Christians were probably for the greater part committed by the slaves, who, as we know, had flocked to the gods in great numbers. As early as 27 August, the gods left Rome, laden with enormous spoil and marched by Capua and Nola into southern Italy. For Alaric, who had probably borne the title of king already for a considerable time, had resolved to go to Africa by way of Sicily, and gain the dominion of Italy by the possession of that rich province. But when part of the army had embarked at Regium, his ships were scattered and destroyed by a storm. Alaric therefore turned back, but on the way north were seized by an illness which proved fatal before the end of the year 410. He was laid to rest in the river Basentus, Busento, near Cosentia. A large number of slaves were employed in first diverting the course of the river and then bringing it back into its former channel after the dead king and his treasures had been buried. 
in order that nobody might ever know the burial place all the slaves who had been employed in the labor were killed Ataur was now elected king he seems at first to have thought of carrying out the plans of his brother-in-law alaric but on further consideration of the great power of heraclian in africa he abandoned them and resolved rather to lead the gods against gaul it is possible that on his march northward he again sacked rome and he suddenly married placidia before he withdrew from italy he invaded gaul in four hundred and twelve and in that year commenced the war which was waged so long by the teutons against the roman supremacy in that country a little earlier a similar struggle had begun in spain which resulted in the victory of the barbarians in the autumn of four hundred and nine the vandals alani and suevi had penetrated into spain tempted thither no doubt by the treasures of that rich country and by the greater security of a future settlement there the course followed by those tribes was toward the west of the peninsula first of all passing through galicia and lusitania constance on leaving spain had suddenly made an unfortunate choice in appointing geronsius prefect for not only did this official allow the teutons to enter the country but he tried at the same time to put an end to constantine's rule by deserting him and causing one of his own followers maximus to be proclaimed emperor circumstances even forced geronsius into an alliance with the barbarians for when constance returned to spain the usurper could only drive him out of the country by making common cause with the teutons geronsius followed constance to gaul invested him at vienne and put him to death at the beginning of four hundred and eleven he then turned his attention to constantine who concentrated his forces at arles but honorius had by now recovered sufficiently to make war against constantine for that purpose he sent the roman constantius and the goth named wulfila with an army to gaul when geronsius advanced to meet them his soldiers deserted him and joined the imperial troops he himself met his death shortly afterwards in a burning house whilst maximus succeeded in escaping this sealed the fate of constantine for constantius and wulfila defeated the army of the frank edobic who came to render him assistance constantius then proceeded to besiege Ars, which for a considerable time withstood his efforts but eventually surrendered on conditions to the general of honorius the reason for this was that constantius had heard that gunciarius king of the burgundians and goar king of the alani had raised the gaulish noble jovinus to the imperial throne at mainz and in these circumstances he deemed it necessary to offer easy terms of capitulation to constantine the usurper submitted but on the way to ravenna he and his youngest son were killed by honorius's command his head was brought to ravenna 
18 of September 411. Meanwhile, Jovinus, with an army consisting of Burgundians, Franks, and Alemanni, had marched southward, apparently in the belief that the critical situation of the empire, which was at war with both Goths and Vandals, would facilitate a rapid extension of his power. In these circumstances, it was an easy matter for the Teutons, who had invaded Spain, to spread over a large part of the peninsula. For two years, they scoured the west and south of the country, devastating and plundering as they went, until the alteration in the political situation caused by the victories of Constantius induced them to join the United Empire as Federati. In 411, they concluded a treaty with the Emperor, which imposed upon them the duty of defending Spain from foreign invasions. In return, the Asdingi and Suevi received landed property for settlements in Galicia, the Silingi in Betica, and the Alani in Lusitania and Carthaginensis. The larger Roman landowners probably ceded a third part of the land to them. It was a time of the gravest convulsions for the Western Empire, for during these years were laid the foundations on which the first important Teutonic states on Roman soil were built. Stilico seems to have thought it possible for a kind of organic whole to develop out of the Roman and Teutonic nationalities, at least that great statesmen had always promoted peaceful relations between Romans and Teutons. But the change in politics after his death, as well as the immense size of the empire, made a fusion of those two factors impossible. Now the time of the Teutonic conquests begins, though the name of Federati helped for a while to hide the real state of affairs. The very foundation of the Western Empire were shaken. But, above all, the future of Italy as the ruling power of the West was endangered by violent agitations in Africa, the country from which she drew her food supplies. Just as here, in the heart of the Empire, so too on its borders, could serious danger be foreseen. Throughout the provinces, the dissolution of the empire was threatening. It had probably only been delayed so far by the lack of system in the Teutonic invasions and by the immense prestige of the empire. But in respect of this, the last generation had wrought a very perceptible change. During the long-continued warfare, the Teutons had had time to become familiar with the manners of the Romans their strategy, diplomacy, and political institutions, and it was owing to this that the great coalition of tribes in 405 and 406 had already taken place. They are probably to be explained by the ever-increasing political discernment of the Teutons. Another result of those years of war was that under Alaric's rule, the principle of monarchy was evolved out of military leadership. For the continuous warlike enterprises could not but develop an appreciation of a higher and more comprehensive supreme power. Thus, Alaric 
was no longer the mere adviser of his tribe. His actions, however, do not show that he abused his high rank in his behaviour towards his tribesmen, while at the same time he ever displayed towards the Romans a humane and generous spirit which was remarkable in those times. On the other hand, the Teutonic tribes, and especially the Visigoths, has seen enough of the internal weakness of the great empire and of the impotence of its rulers to encourage them to make more serious attacks on the western half, although Alaric, in 410, would willingly have saved from pillage the capital of the world, that capital which, according to his own words in a message brought to Honorius by an embassy of bishops, had ruled the world for more than a thousand years. The fact that he nevertheless led his army to the sack of the city proves that he did not shrink from extreme measures when it was important to display the superiority of the Gothic army over the Roman mercenaries. Thus it is evident that the Teutonic tribes, and more especially the Visigoths, were at this time passing through a transition stage. They had not yet forgotten their native customs and manner of living, whilst, at the same time, the foreign influences to which they had been exposed had been sufficiently strong to modify, to some extent, their original disposition and mode of viewing things. But as far as may be gathered from contemporary sources, their policy had not been influenced by Christian principles, and Christianity altogether played an important part in the history of these migrating Teutons. It is true that owing to the scantiness of contemporary evidence, we have in many decisive cases to trust to conjecture, and it is a cause for much regret that the moving political forces, and even more, the real conditions of life among the migrating Teutons, are wrapped in impenetrable darkness, which is only dispersed as they begin to live a more settled life, and in particular, after the establishment of the Visigoths in Gaul and Spain, the Vandals in Africa, and the Ostrogoths in Italy. End of section 34 Recording by Emanuela